Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. Greetings. My name's Don Butler. I'm a former Ottawa citizen journalist and author of the recently published novel, A Life of Bliss, which features, among other things, a mysterious quest and the ghost of opera diva Maria Callas. With me today is author Kate Hartfield, whose new epic novel, The Embroidered Book, a historical fantasy about Marie Antoinette and her sister, Maria Carolina, has quickly and understandably become an international bestseller. Kate's novels, novellas, short stories, and games have won or been shortlisted for numerous major awards. Kate's a former journalist who worked for many years at the Ottawa Citizen and lives on the rural edge of Ottawa. Welcome, Kate. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to be here with you, Don. And, uh, you know, you and I worked together for many years in our lives as journalists, and now we're both writers. And I have to say as well, before I forget, that I... I'm a big fan of A Life of Bliss as well. So we are mutual fans of each other's uh, fictional writing, which is wonderful as well. Well, that is great to hear. And uh, I have to say, I have some distance to go to catch up to you, but uh, but you're setting an excellent example for me, Kate. <laughs> oh, it's so great. So for the benefit of those who haven't yet had the chance to read your novel, as I have, uh, why don't you give us just a short synopsis? Yeah, so the embroidered book is about... Um, a girl named Antoine and a girl named Charlotte, who are archduchesses in Austria in the 18th century. Uh, they are Habsburg archduchesses, and as happens with Habsburg archduchesses, they are sent off to marry kings in distant lands. Uh, one of them uh, becomes known as Marie Antoinette, uh, the Queen of France, and the other is uh, Charlotte or Maria, Maria Carolina, the Queen of Naples. And so the book follows the two of them uh, throughout their lives. Uh, with uh, a twist, which is that in this book, they have secret magic. So it is historical fantasy and not just historical fiction. Right. And all sorts of wonderful things happen as a result of that. Can I, uh, I have a lot of questions for you, Kate, but before we, we get to them, maybe listeners would enjoy hearing you read a short excerpt from the embroidered book. Excellent. I'll read the first few paragraphs just from chapter one. If only Antoine could find a love spell, a potion, a ribbon, a ring. With the right magic, she'd open Mama's heart and save her sister from marrying the beast of Naples. It's not as if the Empress Maria Theresa, sovereign of half of Europe, is incapable of love. She loved Papa so fiercely that she tallied every minute she spent with him in her diary. And after Papa's death, the year before last, Mama loved her daughter Mimi enough to let her marry the man of her choice. Charlotte says that Mama was just relieved that Mimi did fall in love with a man, since her only romance before that had been with her sister-in-law, but Charlotte is uncharitable. It is undeniable that Mama shows no signs of bending when it comes to Josepha. Josepha must go to Naples. It has been decreed. I'll stop there. I think that gives everyone a taste of what the book is like and uh, and uh, hopefully whets their appetite to read it. It's, uh, it's a great book. Uh, why did you decide, Kate, to set your novel in the latter part of the 18th century? That was a time of turmoil and revolution in Europe and North America. What, what appealed to you about that period in history? 
Yeah, I, I think it is the turmoil, the the rapid change that was happening at the time. Um, you know, the in terms of philosophy, art, music, science, uh, and certainly in politics. Uh, you know, things were changing year by year so quickly. And all the old structures in Europe were crumbling and, and everyone could sort of see that they were crumbling. Um, but what was to replace them, obviously, uh, was an open question. And, um, you know, so that periods of rapid change like that have always appealed to me. And I think um, the 18th century also reminded me in some ways of, of my own time of growing up in the 20th century and seeing the rapid change and the hope that we had at the end of the 20th century when you know, liberal democracy was spreading and it seemed like, you know, we were talking about the end of history. It seemed like things were changing in a um, in a good way and in a permanent way. And now it's a little bit more of an open question and uh, some of that hope has faded. And so that reminded me a little bit of the Enlightenment and the 18th century and the sort of um, two steps forward, one steps back, <laughs> one step back that that history often has. Yeah. Would, would you say your novel presents an alternate history of these, those events, or would it be more accurate to call it a secret history? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So uh, secret history, generally speaking, means a plot that does not depart from the known events of history. And so um, nothing in the book contradicts what you can learn on Wikipedia from what actually happened, whereas an alternate history typically changes uh, some event. Um, so you have something like the man in the high castle as an alternate history when you have, um, it posits that uh, the that World War II went differently, for example. Um, so the embroidered book unfolds, uh, for the most part, as a secret history. I think there, there are moments that are a little bit open to interpretation there, but the way that I approached it was very much to keep the events of history as they were, uh, that um, the magical plot unfolds in the background in secret conversations and uh, everything that the public would have seen was the same as happened in our own history. Yeah, I did notice that when I was uh, reading your book. I was going to Google a few times because I wanted to see, hey, did this thing that you're talking about in the book really happen? Did this <laughs> character really exist? Did they really do that for that reason? And Almost every time I looked, yes, it, yeah. was, it was exactly what history recorded, but you've given it a different twist. Yeah, definitely. And uh, that's one of the puzzles that I find really fun about writing historical fantasy in that way, that is uh, the secret history way. And um, one of the, the fun things about it, too, is that what actually happened is often so weird that it is weirder than anything that I could invent, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so truth is definitely stranger than fiction. Yeah, yeah, but you've you've managed to meld those fictional elements to the truth and come up with something unique, I think. Mm. So the embroidered embroidered book features as as we've been discussing real characters. There's about 70 of them by my count. I, I was reading your uh, your listing of characters at the beginning of the book and tallied them up and counting all the children and everything. There's about 70 characters in your book. Uh, and, of course, real events reinterpreted by you through a lens of magic. Uh, you do, I think, a masterful job of describing the look and feel of the era. Everything from the clothes your characters wear to the palaces they inhabit. One example could be your description of the Grand Corps, which you call a French instrument of torture, the corset that puts all other corsets to shame. And this is something Marie Antoinette has to endure on a number of occasions, <laughs> not enjoying it very much, I don't think. What sort of research did you do to draw so faithful a portrait of this vanished time? 
yeah, the research part is so fun to me and uh, the clothing and corsets uh, in particular, you know, um, corsets and stays are uh, an interesting element of historical fiction because um, from a modern perspective, often they are written as written as instruments of torture, but for the most part, they weren't, you know, they were supportive undergarments that people thought were perfectly normal and, and didn't hurt. Um, however, uh, the Grand Corps was was different and Marie Antoinette um, actually did write letters about how much she hated it. Um, and uh, it was, you know, she was not a fashion icon when she first went to Versailles. She was seen as, as somewhat dowdy and provincial and um, there was a lot of prejudice against Austrians in the court. And so she she remade herself into a fashion plate and uh, very deliberately did all all the things that she was supposed to do and, and did them better than anyone else so that they couldn't get rid of her and send her back um, and and destroy the alliance. Uh, so it was all very deliberate and, and the fashion choices, you know, were linked in with the politics in that way. Uh, so all of it really kind of matters, you know, the food and and the, the clothes and uh, the architecture and and all of that is is not just window dressing, but it is very political and and central to the story. So I had a lot of fun reading about it, and uh, you know, there's so much written about Marie Antoinette. I think I own three books about her clothing alone. <laughs> so so the the challenge was almost you know where to stop and um, you know researching the big picture stuff as I, as I needed it. And then when I would, uh, you know, find myself in need of a description of something, I would go and find that, uh, and not spend too much time looking in advance because otherwise you could be doing it for years. But Charlotte was the opposite challenge because, um, Charlotte doesn't have as much written about her. And so, um, I had to be a little bit more creative and in, in looking for academic sources, journals, and even things like tourist pamphlets and, and blogs and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's a mammoth undertaking to try and research at the level of detail that you have that era. I mean, as you say, there is a fair bit of information uh, in some areas, but it's hard to find, I imagine, in others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one thing with Charlotte that I found really useful is that her diary does survive in parts. Uh, so there's about five years of her diary that I have in translation. Uh, she kept a diary through her whole life and most of it's gone, uh, but we have that five years. And so that was a huge help. Yes, I bet it was. Um, you also very uh, do very detailed descriptions of these places, the palaces and other places that your characters inhabit. Did you visit any of those places? I have visited some. Um, I got to visit Versailles actually, just as I was uh, finishing up uh, one of the, I don't know, the third or fourth draft of the book, I think, around there. So I'd already written most of it, but uh, some of my own impressions did make it in uh, a little bit here and there. Um, and for the most part, I have found that um, researching places in the past, you know, they change so much in the intervening years that often it's just as useful to find documentary sources and um, contemporary accounts of what they were like at the time and how they struck people at the time because you know Versailles today is a museum and so even though um, it is wonderful to visit there and you you get a sense of it in person that you would never get from pictures um, you have to be aware that it's changed a lot as well and so I found it very useful to read old memoirs and old accounts and and that sort of thing and even things like the poet Goethe when he went to Italy and um, and encountered the Kingdom of Naples, you know, like that account was more useful to me um, because it was someone at the time and seeing how things were back then. So um, even though travel is great and, and it has been important to me, it's not the most useful in terms of research, I think. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. And, and I guess you're right. If you're writing 
uh, in a historical period that's no longer there. You're not seeing the same things as you say when you go today. But if mm -hmm. you were writing a contemporary story, that would perhaps have a greater value. Oh, definitely. And I think the farther back you go, you know, the more different it is, obviously. And so, you know, writing a 20th century history, um, you know, as, as you did, I think it's um, seeing the places and having a feel for them is much more important. Um, you know, which is not to say that that it's not important to have that sense uh, for the 18th century as well. But, um, you know, the balance between witnessing it yourself and reading in documentary sources gets a bit different, I think. Yes, for sure. So um, there are many strong female characters in your novel. Of course, the two main characters uh, are, are, the, are two of them, but there are uh, many others. And uh, even though their world is, is run by and for men, some of them wield real power. What were you thinking about when you created those characters? Yeah, that's a big theme in the book, for sure, the the power of women. And that was one of the things that appealed to me right off the bat when the idea came to me is uh, that there were these women in 18th century Europe who were quite powerful. Um, a lot of them were Habsburgs, but then, you know, you also had two great empresses in Russia in that century, for example, uh, and that wasn't something that uh, I had heard a lot about uh, growing up. You know, the the idea of female power was seen as anomalous, uh, I think, in my education, that uh, there were certain very strong personalities. But other than that, it was not something that happened. And I think the 18th century in Europe sort of disproves that, that there was a lot of female power. But because it was a patriarchal society, um, you know, it had to be wielded in particular ways. Uh, so there's an example of that in, in Maria Teresa's own life where um, she was technically called a king, um, you know, rather than a queen. So she had to make herself king. Um, and something about that sort of appealed to me, the idea that you could wield power as a woman, but you'd had to find loopholes. You had to find ways of going about it, you know, in the same way that she also was uh, technically uh, Empress by marriage, um, but everyone knew who actually wielded the power. And, and her daughter, Charlotte, actually did the same thing. She was not technically the sovereign of Naples. Her husband was, but her husband was useless and everyone knew it. And so she just, uh, you know, went about ruling the kingdom uh, on her own. Uh, Marie Antoinette is a little bit different. She had no desire to be the sovereign. She didn't want to take power, but she, she, she had to survive, you know, and that was her... Uh, her goal through her entire life was was to survive and to do what, what was expected of her and to be a good queen of France. And unfortunately, she made wrong decisions um, constantly, <laughs> but uh, but that was always her goal. And so she she was looking for power, but it was a, a sort of power to keep herself going rather than a power over other people, strangely enough. Yeah, she, she wanted more than anything to be loved by the people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That was that was kind of her primary objective to be somebody who, who met their expectations and and yeah. got their love, but everything she did seemed to create the opposite uh, outcome. Yeah, it's the great paradox of her life. You know, she she was very soft-hearted and uh, was really struck by the love of the people when she first came as the Dauphine uh, to France and um, really just wanted to do the job that she had been sent to do and, and keep the peace alive between Austria and France because th those two countries had recently been at war. So her marriage was, um, you know, her marriage would save lives if it could keep the peace alive. And so she knew that and she took it very seriously and, and tried her best to be a good queen um, and, and sort of the people's princess of her time. Uh, and it worked for a long time until, uh, until it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then it really didn't. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 
So, as we've talked about, your two main characters are sisters, uh, Charlotte, who becomes the Queen of Naples, and Antoine, who becomes Marie Antoinette. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were born into lives of incredible privilege, of course, Mm -hmm. Uh, yet both were sent away in their early teens to marry men they'd never met to forge uh, political alliances. Their destinies weren't really within their own control. What message were you hoping to convey about the, the status and lot of women? Yeah, um, it was interesting to me that uh, I felt a lot of empathy for them, uh, even though their lives seem so distant and so um, unfathomable to us today. You know, we can't imagine what it would be like to live in that kind of wealth and that kind of privilege, most of us. Um, But, you know, in in some ways, uh, I could imagine it and I I could put myself into it. And and the fact that, uh, you know, as a white woman today, I have, you know, a middle class woman, I do have that that paradox as well of of being very privileged in some ways and marginalized in others, and so I could I could imagine that um, that strange juxtaposition of being very powerful, but at the same time having to be subservient to one's husband, even if that husband was uh, an abusive oaf, uh, the way that Ferdinand was in Naples, for example. Um, so that um, that strange locus of power where. Um, you know, you're powerful, you're powerful until a man walks into the room uh, was something that I could understand and hasn't really changed in some ways. Um, and a lot of their personal lives um, were familiar to me as well. You know, they were both mothers and, and I'm a mother. And although I certainly don't have 18 children the way that Charlotte did. <laughs> luckily for me, exactly. I could only imagine. But uh, but that you know, that sort of gave me an in as well, that I could understand the way they felt about their children and the way they felt about their families and, and each other. You know, I have a sister as well. Um, so in some ways, they didn't feel that distant to me. Yeah. I mean, uh, without giving away any of the plot, there there are times as the story unfolds where the sisters grow apart or on perhaps different teams. Mm-hmm. Um, was that, and I thought, you know, when I was reading, I thought they were going to end up perhaps as, as enemies and, and they actually don't. Mm-hmm. But what were you, what were you thinking about when you had them um, going in opposite directions like that? Yeah, I think there were a couple of influences on my decision there. Uh, one of them is um, it's a bit of a, an homage, I think, to the idea of rival wizards or rival magicians, um, which are typically men. You know, um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is uh, probably my favorite novel, and it, it features two male magicians who are sort of frenemies uh, like that as well. And, uh, you know, it's a trope that we've seen in fiction a lot, the sort of, um, you know, Saruman and, uh, and Gandalf uh, kind of idea. And so I thought it would be interesting to have it be sisters uh, as rival magicians. And so I did want their relationship to cool and and turn into something adversarial at some point. Um, But the other influence on it was just the idea of of a sisterly bond being um, something that exists even when you do drift apart. You know, my sister and I are are absolutely not enemies and uh, have had a wonderful relationship through my entire life. Um, but certainly there are, you know, you move away, you go somewhere else, you have your own family and there are times when you don't speak for a long time. And um, even despite that, the moment you see each other, you're back to being 10 years old and uh, having in jokes that nobody else has. And, you know, so I, I wanted to have that sense too that that being a someone's sister is something that can survive a lot. Yeah. Now, Maria, uh, Marie Antoinette 
Uh, most people have heard of her. There's a lot known about her. Uh, her sister, uh, who becomes uh, Maria Carolina, less so. Uh, but you don't hesitate to get into their heads and create really fully fleshed out characters. Neither is quite what we might have expected. Can you talk about each woman in real life and how you came to portray each of them as you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's always a tricky thing, you know, because in historical fiction, getting into someone's head who was a real person, you know, even when they're dead, um, there is a sense of responsibility and and ethics that you, you know, you're portraying someone and you're and you're taking a guess, you know, you're always taking a guess. Um, but one of the things that I believe is important about historical fiction is um, that it does make you question everything you've learned, uh, even in nonfiction about someone. Uh, and that's uh, one of the meanings of the title, the embroidered book is, is to get at that idea that that history is always being embroidered and re-embroidered. Um, so, you know, I, I took that responsibility seriously of, of thinking, okay, well, I'm going to get into their heads and portray them a certain way. And uh, um, how were they really? And so I do, I, this is my sort of best attempt to get at the personalities that came out of the pages of nonfiction for me. Um, I read um, quite a lot about Marie Antoinette and Antonia Fraser's uh, book, um, the Marie Antoinette, The Journey is a wonderful biography and it was sort of my Bible. It's very well thumbed. Uh, and uh, the, for Charlotte, as I say, there's, there's less, but I tried I tried to sort of put the picture together from what I could find. And Charlotte, strangely enough, despite the fact that she has less about her, um, I really identified with her. I, I felt like I knew her right away. And, uh, you know, that that her motivation to be a good ruler and to create this enlightened kingdom was something that I understood as someone who's been sort of uh, an idealist and, and a political nerd my whole life. Uh, her her reading of Montesquieu and, and, and all of that, um, and the way that her idealism sours and becomes cynicism and, and tyranny later in life as well, I, I, I could see the danger of that um, happening as well. So yeah, it, it's, it was sort of a a process of, of reading a lot of nonfiction about them and reading a lot of contemporary accounts and then just sort of going with my heart and what I felt they would have been thinking and feeling. So, so, so if I'm understanding what you're saying, I, I, I think you were attempting to understand them as women and portray them based on that understanding, but you weren't reinventing them as women. You were trying to be faithful to who they were. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It was definitely, you know, my interpretation uh, as it would have to be, but uh, it was not out of whole cloth by any means. I was definitely trying to get a sense of who they might have been as people. Could you speak a little bit maybe now about the two female artists who appear in the novel? They're, they're not huge characters, but uh, they, they have appearances. And one of them is uh, 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 the portraitist uh, Elizabeth Louise uh, Vigée Lebrun. And then there's also Angelica Kaufman. Uh, why did you weave them into your novel? Yeah, uh, they're so fascinating. And again, I felt that female artists and uh, female portraitures, portraitists of, of the 18th century um, had been somewhat erased and forgotten. Uh, uh, and there's been a pushback against that, I think, in recent years in terms of popular culture. But, uh, you know, I had no idea growing up that there were these artists who uh, were so influential and who made their living and, and were women uh, in the 18th century. 
And uh, yeah, no, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say uh, the, the National Gallery had a wonderful exhibit of Vijay Lebrun's work in 2016, which which I enjoyed very much. Uh, did you see it? And what was that an inspiration for you in any way? I did see it. And it was definitely an inspiration. Uh, I had started writing the book in late 2015. And so I saw that exhibit when I was still early in the stages of, of writing the first draft. And I can't recall now exactly how much... Uh, uh, that exhibit featured into my decision to make Vigi Liberal a character, but it definitely featured to some degree. And, and maybe that was the entire impetus for it um, because I was really struck by that exhibit. And, uh, you know, it included um, some of the famous portraits of Marie Antoinette and her family that she painted. Um, so yeah, it, you know, art has always really featured in my fiction in odd ways. I have my, my first novel um, was actually inspired by a Peter Bruegel painting. Uh, so uh, yeah, that definitely loomed large in my mind. The art gallery, the National Gallery here in Ottawa is somewhere I go when I feel the need to refill the well that I'm feeling creatively burnt out. I, I go to the National Gallery and that always helps. You're, you sometimes feel creatively burnt out? Kate? I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's I hard, do. To, hard to believe given how prolific you are. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's been, uh, you know, I think a real challenge for all of us, uh, you know, on top of all the other challenges in the pandemic is not being able to go out and experience art and, and music and that sort of thing in the same way, because um, I don't think I realized how important it was to my own creative process to, um, to be inspired by the work of others. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. Now, magic, of course, plays a huge role in the embroidered book. In fact, the title refers to a secret book of magic spells and enchantments. Why did you want to inject magic into your story? Yeah, um, I think partly just because that is the tradition that I'm used to writing in. So I, I have written quite a lot of speculative fiction of various kinds. And so that is where my imagination tends to go naturally is to think, okay, well, here's this great story, but how can I put a dragon into it or magic or time travel or something? Um, you know, when I look at the past, I often feel like I'm speculating uh, based on a few scraps of information that that I can find. And so speculating about the past and speculating about the impossible seem like partners to me that um, they go together very well. And magic to me is a wonderful metaphorical tool for exploring ideas of power and sacrifice and um, change and hope, you know. So uh, it allowed me to play around with some ideas in a thematic way that, uh, writing straight ahead historical fiction wouldn't have for me. Okay. The system of magic that you invented in this uh, novel is it's quite ingenious. It's uh, an ancient and largely hidden knowledge, jealously guarded by a secret society that called the Order. Uh, it wants to keep the magic for its own use and fights to suppress what you call rogue magisters mm -hmm. who are outside of its control. That struck me potentially as a bit of an allegory for the battle between elites and revolutionaries of the day, and perhaps of today as well, 
for knowledge and power. Can you talk a bit about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a, a big part of the book in, in terms of, uh, like you say, the, the themes and motifs that I wanted to explore. Um, in some ways, it's inspired by the real 18th century, which was a time of um, proliferation of secret societies. And, you know, the Freemasons and the Jesuits were both um, persecuted and, and shut down because they were seen as being too powerful at a certain point. Uh, so that was really interesting to me, just that idea of secret societies uh, playing that role in politics. And so I thought, well, if I have magic, then there'll be a secret society for that as well. And and then, of course, that sort of evolves into the clubs that became the Jacobins and um, and um, fueled the French Revolution. Um, so, yeah, it was mirroring history in some way. And also the idea of, uh, as you say, the the elites and the people who can have power and the people who can't have power, which is um, a big theme in the book. Um, and interestingly enough, um, you know, which was not planned or, or anything in any way, um, another writer, H.G. Uh, Perry, has a, a wonderful duology um, of um, books about magic set in the French Revolution. The first one's called A Declaration of the Rights of Magicians. And she actually, um, you know, she looks at it from kind of the other side where she looks at it from the revolutionaries' perspective. Um, and so we don't know each other at all, uh, but I've, I've read her books. And um, and that's really interesting to me that you could uh, look at that theme from, from both sides because my book, um, tip, most, of the, most of what you see is happening in, in the royal courts. Um, so you don't see the revolutionaries uh, as much. Uh, so it's, it, I think that's a really interesting companion volume for anyone who likes my book. Go check out A Declaration of the Rights of Magicians. Did you read that while you were still working on this book? I didn't. I read it um, after I had handed in the last draft, uh, which was good because, well, at first, because at first I was terrified because I saw that it was coming out and it was coming out before my book. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, so. <laughs> but you know writers always think oh no somebody else has had my idea um but uh, i was relieved to find that um that it is quite different and um you know it, it's a great book but it is very very different from mine and, and looks at it from a totally different lens uh so which goes to show for any aspiring writers out there that if you have an idea and you fear that somebody else has done it before or will steal it or something like that it's all in the execution really um so you know feel free just explore your ideas and don't worry about it Right. One element that really fascinated me uh, in your novel was the need for magic's practitioners, who you call uh, magisters, to sacrifice something of value to them. Could be an object, maybe a memory. A lot of them seem to be memories uh, in order to uh, get a spell to work. How did you conceive of this principle and why did you think that was uh, necessary? Yeah, I had um, a few different influences there. I think, you know, ideas are often sort of like rivers and their their tributaries feeding into them from, from various places, I think. And so uh, the idea of sacrifice, I think partly because it felt like an old, an old way of doing magic, you know, that they would have this sort of medieval roots of having um, the star on the floor, like Dr. Faustus, you know, and, um, uh, and having to offer something up in exchange for power, uh, which is a, a common theme in stories about magic going way, way back. Um, so that just, it, it felt to me like something that might have been around for a long time, that you could plausibly believe that this was a form of magic in Europe. And it, was, it is a very sort of European folklore sort of uh, approach to magic. Um, and so that was part of it. And part of it was the thematic uh, aspect of it, that I wanted to talk about the choices that these women made 
in order to wield power and the personal sacrifices that they made. And, and often they were not sacrifices in the way that, that people of less privilege would make sacrifices. Um, they, they were losing bits of themselves, losing their humanity in a certain sense, uh, which I think is often something that happens when, when people take power, um, you know, you have to sort of turn a, a turn away from horrible things or, um, or you convince yourself that you have to turn away from horrible things, um, or you lose the memory of what it used to be like when you weren't as powerful, for example, or you you turn your back on friendships, uh, all of that. And so those kinds of sacrifices I wanted to explore uh, in a kind of metaphorical way. And then the third reason is just totally practical, which is when you have a story in which people can do magic, you have to have some reason that they would not do magic all the time <laughs> because other, otherwise your plot falls apart. So the, the practical constraint is you want to have some limits or some cost to, to doing magic. Right. And sometimes those costs are, you're right, they're not usually terribly high by the standards of maybe many people, but uh, they, they, they are serious. If, you, if uh, some of your characters are sacrificing their memories of a friend or a friendship or a love even. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, um, that's something I think people uh, reading it can really connect to. Imagine having to forget that love person that you, that you were connected to at one point in your life and never remember you had that feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the way that they, uh, that they do magic, what they get in return for that is very material. You know, they're enchanting objects always. Uh, and so there is an element of, um, losing your humanity in exchange for material gain uh, to it as well, um, which is, uh, you know, a bit subtle and, and under the surface. But uh, it was always in my mind while I was writing this, that this is the age of um, imperialism and colonialism and, and exploitation um, in many parts of the world, you know, in Europe and beyond. Um, and so that that sort of acquisitiveness um, of the ruling class, I wanted to kind of mirror in the magic system as well. Excellent. Uh, you wrote the uh, novel in the present tense. Wh why did you choose that? Yeah. Um, so choosing a tense is always uh, a little bit fraught for me because I do write in both past and present tense. I have books uh, in both. And um, with this one, uh, I felt because it was so dense in terms of the history uh, that I wanted to make it feel very immediate and feel very accessible to the reader. So some readers um, kind of balk at present tense because it's not as commonly used, but I do think one effect of it is that it does put you right in the driver's seat, so to speak. So you feel like you are right there with the characters. And I wanted that in this case because it had the possibility of being, of feeling quite dry and distant, um, you know, and so I was always pushing back against that to make it not feel like a Wikipedia article that it was, you know, that you were actually living um, in this in this room with these people. And so the present tense, uh, you know, helped me to do that. Um, and also because, um, yeah, it has it has a certain mood or tone as well. And I was definitely inspired, I think, by reading a lot of Hilary Mantel. Hilary Mantel's um, Cromwell books are in present tense, and she does just a remarkable job of creating that immediacy as well. Um, but it, it creates a challenge when you're skipping over long periods of time um, in present tense because it's it can be difficult to write those. So that a lot of work behind the scenes went into um, making sure that I could cover time, uh, you know, in a way that wasn't going to feel choppy. Right, right. Uh, well, I think you succeeded. It's, it, it works very well. Um, 
Now, you also, another thing you do in the, in the novel is you use letters between some of your characters to convey the plot at times. Mm-hmm. Um, why did you do that? And what are the advantages and pitfalls of that sort of an approach? Yeah, and that, that feeds directly into that whole question of, of passing time. And um, I had a few letters in, uh, in the draft that my editor, Jack Renanson at Harper Voyager, um, was working on. And he actually encouraged me to add some more um, and found some places where he wanted me to add those in. Uh, and the reason was because they are so efficient at, um, at covering big chunks of time that you can have a letter in which someone says, oh, this happened, this happened, and this happened. And it feels natural because it's a letter. And lo and behold, you've just told the reader that three things happened and you don't need, you know, 10 pages to do it. Uh, so, um, so it was a way of sort of telling rather than showing, which uh, was necessary in a book of this length. And the other thing I liked about it was um, it was fun to actually adopt the voices of my characters uh, and think about how they might have written letters to each other. Some of their letters do survive, of course, and, and there are some places where I actually borrowed uh, lines from their historical letters to each other. And yeah, um, especially Maria Teresa's letters to Antoinette, um, you know, all of the things she says about the unsuitable book she's reading and and the, like the horrible, the horrible um, chastising that she does of, of Marie Antoinette all of the time in her letters. Uh, and that was all pretty much taken straight out of her actual letters to her, unfortunately. Hmm. Interesting. You begin each of your chapters with a few short phrases that sort of briefly preview what will happen. And um, I think the technical term for this is chapter arguments. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. You see them most often in older fiction like Cervantes' uh, Don Quixote or Henry Fielding's Tom Jones, books like that. Why did you choose to do that? And how hard were those chapter arguments to write? Yeah, they they are an old uh, tradition. And that's another thing that my editor Jack and I worked on very closely together. And and he was eager to see if we could make that work. Um, You know, I I find them very useful. I also use them in uh, two novellas that I um, published a couple of years ago, the Alice Payne novellas, uh, but I use them a little bit differently in that book. Um, and in this one, uh, they are partly to kind of create a sense of an aesthetic and a mood that is, uh, that is of the right period. Um, but also, um, it, it does sort of tell the reader what to focus on in a certain way. And, uh, you know, um, pick out some of the the thematic things that I thought were interesting and the motifs that I thought were interesting and tease the reader a little bit too, because in a book like this, where it does match the known history, you know, there's always this sort of push pull with the reader where the reader thinks, okay, well, I know what's going to happen next. You know, it's 1789, here we go. Um, And to a certain extent, I wanted to keep the reader on their toes a little bit about what was happening in the book. And so the chapter arguments are a bit of a subtle way of doing that as well. But I read a lot of the, um, you know, I went and researched, uh, I had files and files where I kept, okay, here are all the arguments from Don Quixote and here are the ones from Terry Pratchett and, you know, like just to to get a sense of how I wanted to do mine. Yeah, well, good. This is a really big book, Kate, Um, more than 600 pages. I think it's the biggest by far that you've yet written, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So what were the challenges of writing such such a massive book? Uh, one thing that I found surprising about it is that the, um, you know, it's not just like writing 
two books of ordinary length stuck together <laughs> in a sense. <laughs> so uh, it's it's even harder. It's sort of exponentially harder because the bigger the book, the more plot threads there are. So uh, complexity also expands along with the word count. Um, so I tend to be a heavy reviser. I think this book went through seven major drafts and they were quite different one from the next. Um, so having to do big structural revisions on a book that ended up being 185,000 words, um, it means that you have a lot of rewriting to do, but it also means that there are so many moving parts to it that when you change one thing, um, you know, things in other chapters have to be uh, altered as well. Uh, strangely enough, because you might think that in a book that does hew to known history, you know, how much could you change? <laughs> um, but uh, but a, a lot because, you know, there is so much happening in the background uh, that is character specific and, and so much about their motivations and choices that were kind of up to me. And so the more I, I changed in that regard, um, the more difficult revision became. So it was a long process uh, to revise this novel, but uh, Jack and I worked very closely on it together and um, I'm really happy that, uh, you know, we took our time and, and really got it right, I think. Yeah, you did. How long did it take to write it from beginning to end? Uh, so I started it at the end of 2015. Um, so right around the time that I left the Ottawa Citizen, actually, it would have been right, right around then. Um, but I haven't only been working on that in the intervening years. So I can't say that it took seven years because it has been seven years, but I was doing other things. So I wrote, you know, I have another couple of books that I've written uh, in the meantime and some novellas and a couple of games and short stories and uh, freelance work and teaching. <laughs> so it wasn't seven years full time, but that's how long it has been between uh, the initial email to my agent when I said, oh, I have kind of an ambitious idea in 2015 uh, and publication today. When you sent that email in 2015, did you get an immediate yes? I did, yeah. Um, Jenny Goloboy, my agent, is uh, fantastic. I've been with her actually since 2014. I signed on a different book with her. Um, and uh, she is great in the sense, well, she's great in many senses, but in this particular sense, which is that um, when I have an idea and I think, oh, gosh, this is weird or, you know, whatever, she is, she trusts my instincts aesthetically and just, you know, let me worry about selling it. You know, you go and write it and, and you know, that sounds great. Go off, have fun. You know, she's very patient and, and uh, very eager for me to just use my imagination as I see fit. So, yeah, she was she was supportive and said, absolutely, you know, go ahead. And uh, yeah, she's been a wonderful partner for me. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, this this publisher you have um, is is the biggest publisher. Like the random is it random Viking? Uh, it is uh, Harper Voyager, so part of Har uh, sorry, yeah, so part of Harper Collins. Yeah. Sorry, Harper Voyager, <laughs> biggest probably mainstream publisher you've yet had. Yeah, and you talk a lot when you speak about this book about all that tremendous support you got from them, and, and you're still getting from them in many ways. Mm -hmm. How how big an advantage was that to have a publisher like that um, uh, behind your book? Oh, it's huge. Yeah, it makes a big difference, and I've. Um, you know, I've worked with different publishers, as you say, my first book came out with a small press in Canada, uh, and I've, my novellas have come out with, um, tour.com, which is a branch of Macmillan. So a branch of the big five, but, but sort of smallish, uh, in its own, um, little niche, uh, you know, small, but important. Um, so yeah, I've worked with different kinds of publishers and, uh, and they're all great in different ways, right? I mean, there are lots of advantages to being with a small press as well. Um, and 
you know, but but being with uh, this particular publisher and the fact that they they really have put a lot behind the book. You know, the cover is fabulous. I couldn't ask for a better cover from uh, designer Andrew Davis. Um, my editor, as I say, was just um, the perfect editor for this book. And uh, the, the copy editor and proofreader were so careful and, you know, looking up historical facts to make sure that everything was, was right. And, you know, really going above and beyond to make this book a real beautiful object and uh, to make it the best that it could be. And, and they've been really supportive in terms of marketing and that kind of thing as well. And, and here in Canada, HarperCollins has been uh, behind the book 100% and has been, you know, out there getting it into bookstores. And, um, you know, the, the fact that it is now a Canadian bestseller as well, uh, you know, was beyond my wildest dreams and, and uh, really a testament to how hard everybody has worked. Yeah. Um, you know, we, you, we've referred to the fact that we once worked for many years at the Ottawa Citizen together. And uh, my memory is you were a pretty successful journalist. But then you quit <clears throat> to write fiction, among other things. As you've mentioned, you do other things. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a very brave decision. Some might even say a bit reckless. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to do that? Um, yeah, I had, I had a few different reasons that all converged at the same time. Um, so, you know, as you know well, uh, you know, journalism has uh, changed very quickly over the last 20 years or so. And uh, it's... Uh, I, I loved it so much and I loved working in the newsroom and working with my colleagues and, and having those story meetings every morning. Um, and I, it was so, it was such an emotional wrench to contemplate leaving that. Um, but at the same time, the fact that journalism had changed so much and that so much of our days were taken up, you know, doing, uh, doing too much work, you know, with one person doing the work that five people used to do. And, and I'm sure that now it's one person doing the work that 10 used to do. Um, and so I, I could just see that happening more and more that there was going to be less opportunity to do the kind of work that I wanted. And um, it, it was just getting so much more stressful. And I had a young child and I thought, OK, now is kind of the moment I felt, you know, there are several reasons why I felt that I wasn't there wasn't really a path for me anymore uh, uh, in newspaper journalism. And so I thought, OK, well, I'll take there was an opportunity to take a buyout and, and say, OK, well, I'll take a few months where I've got this financial cushion and I can try to freelance and try to make it um, writing fiction and, and teaching. And if that doesn't work, you know, I can get a job. <laughs> so so I, I took a few months and, and tried it and it, it worked out. Uh, so here I am seven or six, six and a half years later, um, you know, and, and still a, a freelancer and, and fiction is becoming more and more and more a part of my working life and my income. Uh, which is what I wanted it to be. So I do try to keep my oar in with uh, one or two pieces of journalism every year. Um, I don't want to leave it behind altogether because I do love it, but um, I don't miss being a, a daily uh, newspaper reporter because or editor, uh, just because it is so consuming. And, um, you know, I was writing, the fiction I was writing was happening at, at midnight in stolen hours and, and I had a child and it was just too much. And, and I assume you, probably had long harbored the ambition to be a fiction writer. That was something you probably pointed towards for many years. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I have thought that I would be a, a novelist since I was, you know, five years old or so. I, I've always thought that I, I would be a novelist and that's what I always wanted to do. And um, 
I have actually four different novels in a, in the trunk that I have never published uh, earlier in my career that I wrote and didn't get published. So it's been a long road. <laughs> so um, yeah, and you know, I, I joke about it, but it's absolutely true that that um, you know, journalism was my my stable backup career. <laughs> <laughs> which is not uh, um, the most stable of backup careers, um, which is not to say that I didn't love journalism in its own right as well. I mean, I love both kinds of writing, fiction and nonfiction. Um, but definitely, I always thought that I would do both. Now, as we've, as we've discussed, your, your book, uh, your novel is already a bestseller in Canada and de- debuted as a bestseller in Britain as well. Why do you think it resonates with so many readers? Yeah, that's that's hard to say. I mean, it's it's been really gratifying to see the response from readers. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the things that people have said to me so far is um, the emotion in the story, which is, again, really gratifying because it's something that I've had to work at as a writer. Um, earlier in my career, I used to get a lot of rejections um, from editors saying that, they couldn't connect with the characters or that the emotion wasn't on the page and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, to me, I thought, well, of course, you know, how couldn't you imagine, can't you put yourself in their shoes? Uh, And now, but so I really had to learn how to do that, how to convey emotion to the reader. Um, So it was a very deliberate sort of craft leveling up that I did. And so, and I do think that that's one of the most successful things about the novel is that it's not just a recitation of historical facts. It's, um, it's history with emotion and, and real life um, built into it. So that's been one of the things that I have heard from readers. And I've also heard from a lot of readers that they have been sent to Google and Wikipedia to check, uh, did this weird thing actually happen? And that brings great joy to my heart because I am that kind of reader too. Every time I you know, watch a movie or read a book, I need to go and research all of the, the background. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy to add to that tradition. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right about the emotion that, um, uh, you know, the, I found that I really identified with these characters of yours. And uh, like, who would have ever thought, based on what we know about Marie Antoinette, that you would feel sympathy, empathy, actually sorrow at what happens to her. I mean, right. it, it just didn't seem to be uh, a likely feeling, but you've managed to make her such a human, such a, a character that you care about that, that that's the way you respond. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And I feel the same way that I, I almost never would have thought of that myself. And and by the time I got to the end of writing it, I did feel quite sad um, about her situation. And, you know, the, the, the scene that always gets to me uh, just in the book and in her life is at the end when um, it's the night before Louis' execution and they're all in, in prison together and uh, he's being kept in a different room and he he very deliberately says well I'll come back in the morning to say goodbye to the kids and but he doesn't you know and he and he just goes and um you know and so I think even though at one level we all know okay yes these people were so privileged so powerful so you know and and they sent so many other people um to prison and and to their deaths and and everything else and and they're certainly not innocents by uh, any stretch of the imagination although of course the children were but you can even so even knowing all of that, you can really put yourself in that position of being a father um, and knowing that that you're going to die in the morning and, and having your last meal with your family. And so I think, um, you know, in the end, it wasn't it wasn't difficult for me to uh, to have emotion in those scenes. Yeah. So just I'm sure that some of the people listening are writers. And, and I wondered, based on you know your career so far, what sort of tips would you have for people who are aspiring writers? 
Yeah, well, as I said, I've been at it a long time and I've had a lot of rejection, um, a lot of manuscripts that that never saw the light of day. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm 45 now and, um, you know, which is young for a writer. So <laughs> there's always hope, right? I think there's, there's um, you know, it is it is a very, it can be a difficult uh, field to work in and, and lonely and all the rest of it. Um, but I do think it's worth persisting if it's what you love to do. Um, and I think that my career is, um, is a testament to that, that, um, you know, it's been, it hasn't been easy getting to where I am uh, by any means. Um, but I think that the things that have kept me going uh, have been uh, community, you know, um, the Writers' Festival among them, uh, having places where you can learn from other writers and uh, feel a part of that, of that creative community is huge um, in terms of support. And the other thing I think that's, that's kept me going um, is, is the sense of always wanting to learn and always wanting to get better, which is what fascinates me about writing fiction is, you know, it's never easy. It never gets easy. The next book you write will always be feel like your first book because it needs new things and new techniques. And um, it's always a challenge. Uh, so that sense of craft and learning um, has kept me going. Um, and I hope that I continue to get better. Oh, I, I, we have no doubt that you will. Um, mm -hmm. Just as a wrap up, maybe this discussion, Kate, uh, what's next for you? Are you working on uh, another novel? Yeah, I have lots of things coming down down the pipe. So um, this August, August 2022, uh, I will publish a, my first tie-in novel. So uh, what that is for people who aren't aware is when you write a novel that is set in um, a universe, um, you know, like a movie universe or a comic book universe or something like that. So in this case, it is um, set in a video game universe, which is the Assassin's Creed um, world. So my novel, The Megas Conspiracy, is coming out in August um, from Aconite Books, and it's uh, set in the Assassin's Creed universe. Um, and uh, and I can't say too much more about what's coming after that in terms of Assassin's Creed books, but there probably will be more. And uh, also I have other novels coming um, as well that I can't talk about, but they are in the pipe. So there are some, some novels that um, my agent and editor and I are already working on um, and there'll be an announcement pretty soon. Excellent. Are these novels that you've already started to write or are they still in the thinking phase? Yeah, a bit of both. So um, there's one that's already written uh, that will be coming out uh, probably in about a year, year and a half. So we're going to announce that very soon. Um, and another thing that we want to do is bring out, um, my novel armed in her fashion, which was a novel I mentioned that came out from a small press in 2018 and it won the Aurora award. And then for various reasons, went out of print, uh, soon thereafter. So it's been out of print for a few years now. So, uh, we're working on bringing that one back into life. Um, and, uh, and there's a novel that I've written that is sort of, um, starting the editing stage now that we'll be talking about soon. And I'm also working on um, working on a new novel about halfway through drafting, uh, which is set in the Second World War. So um, I'm, yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, I keep doing this thing to myself where I force myself to go to new time periods to to do research. And <laughs> so, yeah. You're becoming a historian, if nothing else. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. So uh, when can we expect to see uh, the Netflix series, The Embroidered Book? <laughs> well, from your lips to Netflix ears. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a wonderful uh, film agent actually now, which was a, a new thing for me. And, um, and you know, I it, it, sort of hilarious because um, she, she's wonderful. And, and I, I talked to her for the first time and, and I just had this big, silly grin on my face because, you know, just first 
for someone who grew up in Selkirk, Manitoba, to be talking to their film agent on the phone, it just feels sort of surreal and strange. And um, yeah, so uh, so she's working on it. So it's out there. Uh, um, and, you know, if anybody's interested, then uh, I'd be happy to have have a series or a movie or something like that. But we have not had any news yet. So cross your fingers. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I have no doubt that somebody will decide that's an excellent idea. Kate, it's been a delight talking to you today. And congratulations on your novel. It's a, it's a fantastic achievement. And I recommend it to everybody uh, who likes a good story. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. That was Don Butler, author of the novel A Life of Bliss, in conversation with Kate Hartfield about her latest, The Embroidered Book, an international bestseller. You can find their novels at Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and I'm told they even have signed copies of The Embroidered Book available. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors, and thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Thank you.